0: The text reads like this. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, thank you all for being here this evening. I am so excited to jump into the Lord's word with you together. Before we do that, I want to talk to you about one of my favorite composers and songwriters of recent history. Now, I want to talk to you about a man by the name of Alan Menken. For those of you who do not immediately recognize that name, I can almost guarantee that you have heard at least a handful of his beautifully crafted scores. Mencken is most famous for creating the scores which helped fuel the Disney Renaissance of the 1990s. Mencken is credited for composing the scores of movies like Beauty and the Beast, The Little Mermaid, Pocahontas, and Hercules to name just a few. Without Mencken, Many of what we would know as classic Disney songs would not be in existence today. While all of those movies are great. There is one Disney movie that he composed the score for that I believe to be the best score that Disney has ever produced, uh, has ever put out in the entire history of the company. The movie that I'm talking about is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Based on the book written by Victor Hugo, Hunchback follows the story of Quasimodo, a gypsy whose mother, while trying to immigrate into Paris, uh, was murdered by a minister of justice named Frollo. You see, Frollo was planning to kill Quasimodo because of his deformities, but the archdeacon of Notre Dame stops him and makes, him ra- makes Frollo raise Quasimodo as his own son to atone for the sin of killing his mother. He then raises Quasimodo inside of the Notre Dame Cathedral, teaching him that the world outside of the cathedral is a sinful place full of people that would hate and shun Quasimodo for his deformity. In the movie, there is one song that Frollo sings that I believe to be truly epic. The song is called Hellfire, and it really shows the intricacies of this character and how truly evil and blind this character is. In the song, Frollo is praying to the Virgin Mary, as Catholics do, and asking for her to take away the lustful desires that Frollo is feeling for another character in the story. The song begins with the lyrics... Beata Maria, you know I am a righteous man. Of my virtue, I am justly proud. Beata Maria, you know I am so much purer than the common, vulgar, weak, licentious crowd. Frollo is looking at himself and declaring himself to be a righteous man. Everyone beside him is impure while he stands clean from any sin that he could possibly be carrying for himself. When he begins to have sinful thoughts, it's not of his own accord, but of somebody else's. Of course, if you know the story, you know that that is far from the truth. Frollo is looking at himself and declaring his character to be righteous even though he is a sinner. He thinks that because he is attempting to bring justice to the land, that he is a morally upstanding person and is completely clean. Although Frollo is just a character in a movie, there are many people in our world today that believe similar things. They believe that they are righteous based on their own actions in their life. We know this to be untrue because the word of God says otherwise. Each one of us, because of our sin, has been declared unrighteous in this world and to God. And we can do nothing of our own accord to bring righteousness unto ourselves. But the Bible says, also says that there is a path to righteousness and that there is a free gift of grace from Christ. Through Christ's life, burial, death, resurrection, and ascension, we can share together in Christ's righteousness and be reconciled to God. This is the only way that we can be declared righteous. That still leaves us with some problems in the life of the Christian. We are still living inside of a sinful world where we frequently make sinful choices that dishonor God even after we have been saved. Well, that is exactly where the Holy Spirit comes into play During the entire lifetime of the Christian, the Holy Spirit is working in each and every one of our lives to conform us to the image of Christ so that we may look more like him. Throughout the course of our lives under Christ, we slowly start to throw away the things in our lives that are sinful, the sinful decisions, and replace them with ones that are god Honoring. So this evening, as we jump back into the book of 1 Thessalonians, we'll be looking at the first 12, chapter, first 12 verses of chapter 4. To quickly recap what we've seen so far in 1 Thessalonians, we saw Paul recall in the past the work that he did with the Thessalonian church. How they were chased out and how he and the, the other apostles that he was with were desiring to be with him. Paul then pivots from talking about the past to talking about the present and eventually into the future as we will see in the coming chapters. But in this section, we will see how Paul instructs the church to live a life that is pleasing to God as many of your Bibles will title this section. This leads me to my main point and the title of tonight's sermon God calls us to personal holiness. I'll say that again. God calls us to personal holiness. So throughout the rest of our time together, we will see that personal holiness is a call to sanctification. Personal holiness is a call to a sexually holy life. And personal holiness is a call to brotherly love. Let's start by looking at the first couple of verses in First Thessalonians 4. The text says this, it says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know that, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul begins this next section of 1 Thessalonians 4 with the word finally. Even though we're not close to the end of the letter, we're about halfway through it, there are still two entire chapters that we need to be going through. He is using this more of a pivot to show that he's about to instruct the church and teach them more than he did when he was there previously, as we will see in the rest of our study together. Paul uses this section to remind the Thessalonians of their need to walk in a manner pleasing to God, to which Paul acknowledges that they are already doing. But he encourages them to continue to do it more and more. The apostle is trying to highlight the importance of personal holiness in the life of the Christian. As men and women in Christ, we are are taking on a righteousness that is alien to our own. So although we have been declared righteous at conversion, we are still being changed by that righteousness, which is essentially what sanctification is. And that leads me to my first point. Personal holiness is a call to sanctification. Now, sanctification, it's a big word. It's a pretty tricky theological term. I'm sure we've all heard it a number of times. And a number of times it's gone straight over our head. And that's because sanctification as a word has multiple different meanings. You see, when a person first becomes a Christian, they are positionally sanctified. Positional sanctification is when a person is no longer guilty for the sins that they have committed or will commit and have been given grace from Jesus Christ. It's as if a criminal were to show up to court and the judge were to say, because of your crimes, I am issuing at you a fine that you must pay for yourself or go to prison. The criminal can't afford the fine and must pay by going to prison. But before he can answer, the judge then interrupts and says, but before you came into this courtroom, someone came inside of here and paid the fine for you. You are now free. The criminal then no longer bears the burden of paying the fine because somebody else has paid it off. It is the same with the Christian at our conversion. Christ is paying the fine that we must pay for sin. He is paying that fine for us because he has paid the penalty. He has taken our place inside of that, making us positionally sanctified, or another word for that, justified. But there is another meaning to this word, sanctified. This other meaning is the one that Paul is talking about here in this section, and that is progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the continual pursuit for the Christian to become more and more like Christ throughout our entire lives. Instead of it happening at one point, progressive sanctification is something that we will be going through every day for the rest of our lives. The Holy Spirit starts working in our hearts to change our desires and to show us that what we were doing was unholy and displeasing to God and then to replace those desires with holy uh, holy desires that are pleasing to God. You see, progressive sanctification is a cooperative effort between the Christian and the Holy Spirit. What Paul then exhorts the Thessalonian church to do and us by extension is to continue to work on our progressive sanctification so that we are more and more conformed to the image of Christ We cannot stay stagnant in our growth. Never at any point should we be saying to ourselves, I have become good enough. We need to be continually seeking to grow closer and closer to Christ. And I wanna clarify, what I am not saying is that our sanctification should be like a line chart that goes straight up Instead, that chart looks more with more peaks and valleys than we could ever imagine. But the overall direction is more and more towards Christ. But the problem that we have run into as the church is that the church in general has become too tolerant of the oxymoronic, non-growing Christian. And with that, mediocrity, because we are not pursuing growth as we should be. Pastor and preacher Vody Bachum uses an amazing analogy that I would like to share with you all this evening about mediocrity in the church. In one of his talks at a men's conference, he talks about, he talks about how if a young person wanted to pick up a trade or a job that he would go and sit under somebody who has been working in that trade or job for 20, 30, or even 40 years. Someone who is incredibly and extremely skilled in the position. Specifically, he uses the analogy of bricklaying. Now, if you haven't already noticed, the gate outside was wonderfully repaired recently, and if I wanted to learn how to be a bricklayer, I would have come down from my office upstairs and went outside and sat under the man who had been doing bricklaying for years because he is the one with experience. Now, if I, if, if I wanted to learn that, I would sit under him, but if there was a new person inside of the church who knew nothing about Christianity, and needed to be mentored and brought up in the faith, who would we send them to? Well, we of course would send them to the people who have had experience being a Christian and know the ropes. The only problem is that the church in recent history has started to tolerate mediocrity. I will say that, I I can say in my personal experience, in the American churches, I have seen people who have been Christians for almost their entire lives, but if I were to go to them and ask them how I can pray, and ask them about doctrine taught in the church, they wouldn't have the first clue and where to start. And that's not because they're not called to teaching, that they don't have a teaching gift. It's because they have decided that they are good enough and have stopped working towards their own growth. Church, this is a huge temptation that we must call out and recognize. If we do not acknowledge the toleration of mediocrity, then we fail to grow and reach the potential that God has given us. I know that throughout this th- sermon series, I have talked about again and again about how the gospel doesn't just change us at one moment in our lives, but changes us from beginning to end. This, the reason I'm saying this is because this is not only the essence of progressive sanctification and the call to holiness, but this is a major theme here in 1 Thessalonians as well as the Christian life. God is calling you to seek out personal holiness. So seek to throw off the sinful things of this world and instead look to the Lord. It is God's will that you be sanctified. Continuing on, let's pick back up at at the beginning of verse three again. For this is the will of God, your sanctification but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You see, back in Roman times, popular culture was promoting a sexual ethic that was far from holy and highly immoral. Marital fidelity was expected in the lives of the wives of the relationship, but not the same expectation was never placed on young men. You see, young men were often encouraged and expected to almost be sexually active prior to marriage, often sleeping with servants and concubines whenever they wanted to. In fact, many Roman myths were filled with heroes that subscribed to this very sexual ethic, choosing fornication and adultery to chase a temporary high. This meant that the church, who would be encouraging sexual purity, would become a countercultural voice, making them outliers because of their belief. You see, while Western culture and ancient Roman culture are separated by almost 2,000 years, we yet seem to be living in an age where our sexual ethic may seem more refined than then, but we still live in a world of a similar, terrible, and unholy sexual ethic. This makes Paul's exhortation towards the Thessalonians and us about sexual purity all the more important in our lives. You see, people are still seeking the instant satisfaction that comes with sexual pleasure, with the invention of the internet, making this pursuit easier and easier. So we as Christians then need to heed all of Paul's warnings in this section and avoid sexual immorality. This leads me to my second point for this evening. Personal holiness is a call to a sexually holy life. You see, verses four and five state the main ways that Paul says that we should be avoiding sexual immorality through abstinence, and the controlling of our bodies in holiness and honor. This has been the historic Christian pre- position throughout the life of the church because scripture is simply telling us to be abstin- to abstain from sexual immorality and to control ourselves. There is no interpretive principle that we need here to understand this commandment. It is written here, clear as day, abstain from sexual immorality and control your body in holiness and honor. Christians need to be doing both of these things because of the nature that sex always involves more than one person as Paul himself hints at in verse six. You see, Western culture promotes to us this belief in sexual autonomy, that where as long as you are not hurting any other person, that you are free to do whatever you want on your own time. However, this message that the culture preaches to us is highly inconsistent. You see, as soon as someone commits any sort of sexual act, whether that of having actual sex or something as simple as watching pornography, they are always affecting the people around them, whether they realize it or not. The act of sex is one that is meant for a permanent connection between two people. So doing so outside of the confines of a heterosexual, monogamous marriage creates bonds that are not meant to be broken. But under the world's sexual ethic, these bonds are broken left and right. Engaging with pornography is engaging with an industry that is frequently exploiting its workers in numerous evil ways. It is creating a false image of what sex really is and is encouraging the belief of on-demand pleasure while our culture claims that there is such a thing as sexual autonomy, one quick look at this verse and into the world around us shows us that sexual autonomy does not exist. Now where the modern church has also failed with holding up their own sexual ethic is that we have started to buy into some of the culture's views of sex. You see, the culture is preaching to us a sexual ethic that says that sex is the best experience that any individual person could experience throughout their lives. The world preaches to us and tells us that fulfillment comes in sexual pleasure. We see this throughout TV, movies, music. In fact, I even looked at the Billboard top 10 songs that are the 10 most popular songs in our world today. And six out of 10 of them were preaching this unholy sexual ethic. The world wants us to believe this lie and holds that we will never be fulfilled unless we experience sexual fulfillment and experience it often. But the church as itself has started to buy into this lie as well. Specifically, the, the, a movement inside of evangelical circles has bought into this lie, that being purity culture. Purity culture was a movement in evangelical circles that attempted to promote a biblical view of purity by discouraging dating and promoting virginity before marriage. Now, we should affirm the purity culture's ultimate goals of keeping Christians pure. But the movement sadly missed the forest for the trees. The purity culture movement promoted abstinence with the promise that sex is, only, is, is ultimately fulfilling in the context of a marriage relationship between two virgins. Their goal became trying to stop people from having sex rather than honoring the Lord with their purity. Purity culture had its good intentions, but they bought into this lie that sex is the most important thing in in anybody's lives. They turned sex from a precious gift from God into an idol that needed to be worshiped and served, leaving no forgiveness for those who were not sexually pure before coming to Christ. So, church, we must abstain from sexual immorality. The culture is preaching to us a message of sexual freedom that is destructive and degrading. So, we must recognize when it is starting to influence our own beliefs and avoid it at all costs. But in that avoidance, we need to be remembering why we are pursuing sexual purity. We are not doing it to make Sex the best that we can. Instead, we are pursuing sexual purity as a way to work to to walk towards personal holiness and honor God. So keep being abstinent, keep controlling your bodies in holiness and honor, for it not only honors God, but it is loving to those who are around you. And finally, Let us look to the last part of our passage this evening, picking up in verse nine. It says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. All the law and the prophets can be summarized into two simple commands. Christ himself says that the two greatest commandments are that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. As someone seeks after personal holiness, these two commandments are followed more diligently and more fervently. So verses nine through 12 of 1 Thessalonians 4 then serves as a great example of how we should love our neighbor as ourselves. This leads me to my third and final point for this evening. Personal holiness is a call to brotherly love. When it comes to personal holiness, Paul knew that the fruit that came from personal holiness was never something that only the individual benefits from. As someone works towards becoming more holy, they are becoming more and more like God. And the one and only holy God, the God who created everything, does not sit on his hands in heaven, letting things pass by without his intervention. Instead, God has his hands in everything. Showing his love for his people through the work that he is doing in our lives and the maintaining of our world. So then it goes to show that we as Christians, as we are progressively sanctified, as we are pursuing personal holiness, should be seeking to show our love to the world around us, especially with our actions. As we become more and more like God on the inside, we need to start partaking in his work on the outside as well. This is done through the Greek word that Paul uses here for brotherly love, Philadelphia. As the Greek says, or as we know it, brotherly love. You see, Philadelphia's pre-Christian usage was to refer to the love of one sibling. Its use in the church arose because we as Christians started to adopt the words brothers and sisters because we are all one in Christ and we are all a part of one family. But just because it refers to the love of one's siblings does not mean that this love does not extend past and outside of the church. So the first aspect of brotherly love that Paul talks about in this section is that we should aspire to live quietly. There's some interesting translational choices in this passage because the text when translated literally is translated work hard to live quietly. Giving us somewhat of an oxymoron. But we should note here that when Paul is using the word "quiet." He is not talking about the idea of being silent or being restful, but instead of not intruding on the lives of others so that we are not becoming a burden to them. You see, in our culture, sometimes it is thought of positive, especially in the church, when Christians stir up problems uh, for themselves because they do not know when to back away from an issue We often say it's a sign of conviction to be bold in what we say, but such boldness can often be a sign of foolishness and can create bigger problems because we are not living a quiet and humble life before the Lord. The second thing that Paul commands concerning brotherly love is to mind your own affairs. It seems that in the Thessalonian church, there were people who weren't dealing with their own problems, but were only meddling in the problems of others. These busybodies were creating a strain on the church, both financially and relationally, because they were only worrying about areas that were not their own concern. So, this is out of line for how members in our community, for members of a brotherly love community, should be acting. As doing that, messing in the affairs and the problems of others can often be selfish and uh, takes us away from the things that we need to be taking care of. Finally, the last thing that Paul commands concerning brotherly love is to work with your hands. Now, this is not a command for everyone to be working within uh, manual labor, but instead to provide for themselves as well as others in the community who do need help. The individual who is loving the church community like a family is also seeking to work towards the good of the family. This means doing the difficult things at times like working jobs that aren't our first pick if it means the betterment of the family. Combining these three things, Paul is essentially saying to the Thessalonians to keep a low profile, give attention to their own affairs, and to stay busy. If they were to do all of these things, then they would, as said in verse 12, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This will not only help the church to thrive in the midst of a hostile, secular, and pagan environment, but it will also significantly and positively affect opportunities for further outreach and evangelism into the community around them. So church, tonight this must be our goal. We must strive to be a community that is the spitting image of brotherly love. If we are to do this, then we are honoring God who created this community here, this church. And we are loving those with, here within the church. And we are also being a proper space, a welcoming place for non-believers to interact with the gospel. If we are to do this, if we are to embody brotherly love, then we are answering God's call for personal holiness, both in our own lives, and in our interactions with others. And then, and only truly then, can we begin to live a life that is pleasing to God. Please pray with me.